This is the Awareness Offerings Podcast, a weekly offering of yoga philosophy discussion and guided meditation for the moments we're living in. I'm your host, Lara Tara Davy Joplin. I'm a yoga and meditation teacher, integrative therapist, and spiritual social media strategist. I'm trying to integrate the principles of spiritual philosophy as I understand them into all those areas of my work and into my life trying to understand my position as a white woman devotee of yoga in the West, and simply trying to live with awareness. This podcast is me doing all that out loud. Welcome in. You're listening to episode 69, Brahmacharya and Balance. Welcome to this week's Awareness Offering, to the Awareness Offerings podcast as a whole. I'm really excited to be here for our second ever episode of 2023. And as always, if you'd like to support the Awareness Offerings podcast as a whole, best ways to do so are by rating, leaving a review, and or subscribing on whatever platform you're using to listen. You can also share by word of mouth or via social media if you feel called, and all of that just helps other people find this show. And I'm really grateful for that, and as I say every week, we'll probably say every week, I'm even more grateful just that you're here, just that we get to share some space together. So let's get into our shared space. We'll go into our opening practice of singing the sound of Om one time. Om is said to be the sound of the universe. It's a sound that represents pure consciousness, the consciousness that creates and animates and sustains everything. And when we use it as a practice, sometimes it can balance out the smallness and frantic nature and the chaos of the mind and even the world around us because Om reminds us that there is something in us that is much bigger and deeper and more ancient than that. So that's what we're doing. You can join me in singing Om out loud. You can join and practice by listening. You can even vocalize, just make a sound, even if it's not Om. According to sort of the the energetic vibrational philosophy in the yoga tradition, all sound is harmonizing. If you listen to any kind of song and you hear harmonies, there are places where the music is really in balance and sound has that kind of harmonizing effect on our system. So use any kind of sound at all, whether it's om, silence, or the sound of your choice. If you're coming along with me here, you might get your body into any kind of comfortable position. You might choose to close your eyes or just take a soft gaze by looking down the tip of your nose or toward the floor. The idea is just to turn your attention a little more inward than external for just a moment. Then from here, you might take a breath in through your nose if it's available. And then release the breath through your nose. Let's just make some space first. And then inhaling for one round of OM. Thank you for joining me in that practice. And now for this week's discussion. This is episode 69. It is the 69th awareness offering. And in that spirit, and because by nature, I am a slut, which I mean, or what I mean by that is I am someone who 
views sexuality in a way that I hope is oriented toward liberation and also I have the mind of a 14 year old just discovering hormones for the first time but I am I am taking on slut as a a, a descriptor with pride and with joy and with expression and liberation not as a derogatory term but as a slut at heart because this is our 69th awareness offering we're going to talk about sex <laughs> we're going to talk about sex as it intersects with the spiritual path and i am having this conversation because it is a conversation to me even though i am the only person speaking um i am it's a conversational podcast where I speak and reflect into the microphone, but the hope is that it also inspires you to reflect in some way. I am having this conversation as a person who lives in the world in a relatively out loud way. I'm pretty active on social media. I am, I'm in different communities, but I'm a person who teaches yoga and studies and practices yoga. And I'm also in the mental health field. I am a therapist. And I think it's really important to normalize having conversations about sexuality as a person in those two different fields. And sex and my, um, my ownership of myself as a proud slut <laughs> is not something that I talk about regularly and, and sometimes for good reason, right? It in some ways, it is responsible and reasonable to show up as a yoga teacher and especially as a therapist, not just blaring my own beliefs and principles out loud. Um, and there are certain boundaries in those spaces. We want to respect consent. We want to respect the vulnerability of spaces like yoga and, and the mental health setting. And so it's not always appropriate uh, to be talking about sex. But at the same time, I do think it's important to have a conversation about sex as it intersects with, with spirituality and with the mental health space. And that's for a couple of reasons, which I am now going to explain to you. First, spirituality. In my years of practice and study, which I am almost at a decade now, I have found that it's really easy for shame to come into the conversation, both because of the principles of yoga. There are these ancient kind of fundamentals laid out by, by practitioners of old who paved the path of classical yoga. And one of those principles is brahmacharya, which can sometimes involve our sexual energy. And I'm going to talk a lot more about that here in a bit. But those principles can sometimes feel dogmatic and they can sometimes feel um, strict and they can engender shame if we approach them in a certain way. But in addition to that, the way that we, or what I should say, the, the current cultural discourse around spirituality, especially in online spaces and online communities, can also engender shame. Especially now that we are living in a world fueled by social media where spirituality and conspiracy are are more entangled maybe than they ever have been before although I haven't lived in ancient times so I don't know it may have been this bad like in the medieval period too but right now in our modern world absolutely fueled by the internet spirituality and conspiracy are are entangled and as new age spirituality plays out on the internet it becomes apparent 
that some of the, the cultural shame that we already live in when it comes to sex, because that's something that's really important too. Regardless of, of what tradition we grew up in, we have all grown up in a culture, especially in the United States, which was a country based in some puritanical religious principles that can create a lot of shame around sex and a lot of repression around sex. But especially if we did grow up in a religious tradition, I grew up in the Christian tradition. And so that, that tradition, as I understand it, it's the only one I can speak to because it's the only one that I grew up in. Um, that tradition can also create a lot of, a lot of shame and a lot of sticky spots around our sexuality. And I find, and there are people on the internet and in the world that are much more steeped in discourse about this. They have written books, they've done research, and they are, um, they've embodied the experience and they're having these conversations in a more frequent and kind of more in-depth way than I am. But I, I'm finding and others are finding that new age spirituality is starting to incorporate some of the the dogma and the morals and the principles from our purity culture and from religious culture that create shame for example there's a lot of like gender essentialism incorporated in a lot of new age spirituality on the internet in the way that a lot of folks talk about the divine masculine and the divine feminine and I also can use those terms, though I try to add the caveat that I'm talking about energy, I'm talking about essence, and that those are both contained in all people regardless of gender, but there's a lot of gender essentialism in New Age spirituality on the internet, and there's a lot of moralizing and proselytizing about what the right way to live is which can also apply to our sexuality. And those things can also perpetuate shame. And so I'm talking about both the ancient principles of yoga and new age spirituality and the way that it is currently being practiced by way of the internet. Both of those those pieces can come together to create a lot of shame around sexuality and spirituality. And then if I think about this from the other kind of piece of my work as a mental health professional, it also feels really important to normalize this conversation because our sexuality is one part of the whole. And as a therapist, it's really important to me to see and understand and meet my clients from a place of wholeness. And that is at least in part influenced by my study of yoga. Yoga, I take to mean wholeness. And so I try to approach my clients from that place of wholeness. I try to understand all parts of their own experience and how they relate to all the different parts of their own experience. I try to understand the parts of their world, their environment, the context they live in. That whole self-approach is really important to me. And sex and our sexual energy, however we may relate to it, because there's lots of different ways to do that, that's a part of the whole. 
And yet because we live in this culture that is sometimes steeped in repression and shame and gender binaries and and religious guilt and all these different things around sex, it's not as straightforward as it should be for sex to be a part of the mental health discourse, both for clients and for therapists. It can be difficult for a client to bring up their sex life or their needs around sex. It can feel awkward or shameful to do that in therapy, although the hope is that it should be more straightforward. And same thing on the end of, uh, or on the side of the table or the, the side of the room that I sit on a lot of the time as a therapist, I can say firsthand, we are not taught in social work school, which I just finished, how to talk to clients about sex. Yet in a perfect world or in a world that is more free and more whole, which is one I hope we're all working for, therapists should have the skills and the comfort to talk to clients about their sexual world because that's one part of the whole. So these are the reasons that I feel like it's important to normalize having conversations about sex in spirituality and in mental health. And for me, the two are not separate. I merge the two, which is why I'm going to have this conversation primarily from the lens of spirituality, but know that I also incorporate spirituality into the mental health space. And I am choosing brahmacharya as the structure for this conversation. Brahmacharya. And as I mentioned a little earlier, brahmacharya is included in the classical principles of yoga that were laid out by the very first practitioners. And it often has to do with our sexual energy, although I think that it can go a little deeper and in a bit of a different direction than that. And that's kind of the basis of this entire reflection, this this entire awareness offering that I'm going to share with you today. I think that if we look deeply at brahmacharya and we think about all the the different meanings and all the angles from which it can be approached, there's a lot of really interesting reflection available. So we're going to do some of that. And first, I'm going to offer an explanation of what I understand brahmacharya to be from my years of study and learning the path of classical yoga. I'm going to talk about what it is, and then we're going to unpack it some and see how we can look at it from a balanced perspective as we have a conversation about sex and spirituality. So the classical path of yoga is an eight-limbed path. As laid out by the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, one of the foundational texts of yoga, there are eight limbs in this practice. And in the West, the way that we do, we like to distill things down. We like to make things very digestible to the point of oversimplification. We like to cherry pick things because we like instant gratification. And we have done that with the yoga practice. And we have zeroed in on one limb of yoga, asana. The movement practice. And I love the movement practice. I teach movement practices at least five times a week, but it's one limb of eight if we're thinking about the classical path and principles of yoga as a whole. There are seven other limbs. And they're limbs. My my spiritual teacher, Swami Jayadevi, who you'll probably hear me reference a good bit in this episode emphasizes the fact that limbs branch out in all directions. It's not a ladder. There's not one that's better than the other. It's a whole system. And asana is one part, but there are other limbs. Asana is the third limb. There are two limbs that are laid out before movement, the yamas and the niyamas, the yamas and the niyamas. 
And you can understand the yamas and the niyamas as the ethical principles of yoga. Some call them the do's and don'ts of yoga because the yamas are restraints. They're things that we might want to avoid, whereas the niyamas are practices, things that we may want to do, self-inquiry, self-care, connection with the divine, things we can actively do. And both the do's and the don'ts are meant to guide us if we would like to experience the authentic wholeness that yoga is. So they're the do's and the don'ts. And my teacher will often say when she teaches the yamas and niyamas, and she typically does once a year in our 200-hour teacher training program at Kashi Atlanta, which is the urban ashram where I study yoga and where I teach a couple times a week. Um, She teaches this incredible 200-hour teacher training, and she structures it around the eight limbs and the chakra system, the energy body, all of these, like, foundational principles of classical yoga. But when she's teaching the yamas and the niyamas, she always says if we're going to apply these principles, these do's and don'ts to our lives, they have to be applied with non-attachment and self-compassion. With non-attachment and self-compassion. And I take that as a reminder of what I touched on earlier, that it's so easy to take the principles of yoga as rigid and dogmatic and strict and kind of take them up like we might have been taught to understand a faith tradition that we grew up in. For example, Christianity, where I grew up, there can be a lot of intensity and a lot of rules and a lot of, if you don't do this, you will burn in hell for eternity. And it's really easy to apply that rigidity and strictness to these principles of yoga, these do's and don'ts. And it's really understandable to do that because it can feel similar. But my teacher emphasizes self-compassion and non-attachment. There's got to be room for us and room for our well-being in that. And so It feels important to name that as we start to talk about brahmacharya because brahmacharya is one of the yamas, one of the ethical principles, if you will, and it's one of the don'ts. It's included in the don'ts. So the the yamas are the restraints, the niyamas are the, the actual practices we can apply. And so brahmacharya is said to be one of the restraints. And It's included among things like don't steal, asteya, don't cause harm if you can, ahimsa, and then there's brahmacharya. And if we want to understand it simply in a nice, pretty, easy package with the rest of the don'ts, it's don't have sex. And since we try to understand things really simply a lot of the time in our culture that likes to distill things down, it's really easy to just go with it, to say, okay, brahmacharya means don't have sex. And in some ways that's true. Brahmacharya can be applied as celibacy. But there are a lot of different ways to understand brahmacharya, even just the word itself. So we have the the don't, the, the don't have sex, the celibacy piece of it. But if we actually look at the etymology of the word brahmacharya, what it means is to walk with God or to walk in the way of God or to walk 
with the sacred, sacred energy, however you might name it. The word Brahma means God or sacred energy. The word Acharya means to walk with or to pursue or to follow. And so we can think about Brahmacharya maybe as using our energy in a way that allows us to pursue the sacred, that gives us enough energy to have a relationship with the sacred. And my teacher, Swami Jayadevi, when she's teaching about Brahmacharya specifically, she opens space for this piece of the conversation. She does acknowledge that celibacy is one of the practices of brahmacharya. She is actually a renunciate. She is a celibate monk herself, but she also explores this idea that it can be thought of as right use of energy, wise use of energy, using our sacred energy, our consciousness energy wisely so that we have the energy to devote to our practices, to our pursuits of the sacred. So there's that part. There is brahmacharya as walking with God. And then a brahmacharya is actually in reference to a phase of life in Indian and Vedic culture. Someone who's a brahmacharya is often in their early mid-20s and they are beginning a, a phase of spiritual study and spiritual learning in their life. And they are encouraged to practice celibacy in order to have the focus for that pursuit. And so if we think about brahmacharya from all these different angles, I think it gets really interesting. First of all, if we simply consider that the word brahmacharya can translate as walking with God or, or pursuing the sacred, one, anyone can do that. And a dear friend and fellow teacher of mine often discusses this, that Regardless of, at least I believe this, we believe this, there's a lot of morality around it, which I'll touch on a little bit later, but my understanding of the innate goodness and worthiness of all sentient beings is that anyone can pursue the sacred. There have been a lot of efforts to relegate who can pursue the sacred and who is worthy of the sacred in a lot of faith traditions. And again, I'm going to talk more about that in a bit, but my understanding and philosophy is that anyone can pursue the sacred, that it should be available to anyone. Sacred practice should be available to anyone, which means if you have sex and God forbid you enjoy sex, you should still be able to pursue the sacred. So if we're thinking about brahmacharya as pursuing the sacred, walking with God, anyone should be able to do that. But then we can also go a little bit deeper into this etymology, this meaning and translation of the word brahmacharya. Beyond just walk with God, that word brahma refers to a specific God, a specific deity. So in the Vedic and Hindu pantheon, there are all these different deities. And although Hinduism and yoga are not the same thing, you do not have to practice a certain religion to practice yoga. And in fact, I, my understanding is that the yogic practice can enhance any faith tradition, any spiritual practice, but Hinduism and yoga did grow up together in India. And so they've had a profound influence on each other. 
And Hinduism, on the surface, is a polytheistic faith tradition. There are many deities. I say on the surface because I've actually had some conversations with South Asian folks who have expressed that at the heart of it, Hinduism is monotheistic. God is one. The sacred is one oneness, wholeness, that wholeness of yoga, that merging, that union with the sacred, that oneness is the heart of it. And so technically it's monotheistic. God is one, but there are all these different deities, these archetypes, symbols, and stories to help us understand that oneness because the sacred, the oneness is so huge and so vast that our human minds are never actually going to fully wrap all the way around it. But we can try by understanding little bite-sized pieces and all the different deities represent bite-sized pieces, different kinds of sacred energy that can help us understand and pursue the sacred as a whole. So there are all these different deities in Hinduism, which has influenced yoga. And Brahma, the one of the, the root words in Brahmacharya, Brahma, is the god of creation. Brahma represents the energy of sacred creativity. And so if I think about that in terms of Brahmacharya, if I think of Brahmacharya as an invitation to pursue sacred creativity that opens up a lot of doors for me because if I'm being invited to pursue sacred creativity, one, we don't even have to think about brahmacharya as just about sex and celibacy. It's about our creative energy. That wise use of energy, one of the definitions that I've been offered of brahmacharya can be about prioritizing creativity, prioritizing creation. And that doesn't have to be about sex at all. But also, it can be, right? Walking with Brahma, walking with the God of creation, walking with sacred creativity can mean making love, enjoying sex, knowing that sex can be a conscious and purposeful act, that pleasure can be enjoyable and serve us. To me, that is one way we can walk with the God of creation, using the act of creation itself, because that's what sex is. It's not the only purpose of sex, but sex creates life. So using that act of creation on purpose, how on earth could that not be walking with the God of creation? And so if you can't tell yet, my thesis here <laughs> is that we can walk with God. We can practice brahmacharya. We can be on the spiritual path and live a yogic life without being celibate or rigid around sexuality. And so brahmacharya, walking with creation, to me can include the art and act of making love and enjoying it. And now I do think there is room to have a conversation around how do we use our sexual energy in a way that sort of honors the energy of sacred creativity. Meaning, yeah, there is conversation to be had around using sex as numbing or dissociation. Sometimes we need that. I don't want to ever shame anything um, other than violence, of course. Um, 
but like using sex as numbing, using sex to try to get something, using sex as attachment. There's conversation to be had about the wisdom in doing those things if we're trying to honor sex as sacred creativity. And I think there's conversation to be had around like if we're in a phase in life where we just need to have sex in order to remember ourselves as sexual creative beings, I think that's fair too. (laughs) But I want to hold space for the fact that I'm not sitting here saying like, and I'm not exactly not sitting here saying like, (laughs) hold on, let me get my words right. I'm not sitting here saying like, just go have sex whenever and with whomever you want because brahmacharya doesn't just mean celibacy. But I'm also not not saying that. If that is your path to sacred creation, to pursuing the sacred, I'm going to honor that too. And I think that's the point is that there's a lot lot more nuance here than just like be celibate and that's it. So that's my perspective on if we actually look at the etymology itself, the word brahmacharya, a lot more doors can open than just you can't have sex and be spiritual. The question that is posed if we think about brahmacharya more deeply is how do I honor sacred creativity? How do I use my energy to honor sacred creativity? And my beloved spiritual teacher, Swami Jayadevi, I told you I would reference her a lot, will sometimes, when she's doing her teachings around brahmacharya, share the story of the ancient yogis, the ancient practitioners, who discovered that sexual energy is really powerful. And we talked about it. It is the energy of creation and creativity itself. Sex can create new life. And when you are turned on, if that is something that you experience, you can feel it in your body. It is a palpable sensation. And the ancient yogis and practitioners, the mystics, the wisdom keepers, they approached that feeling, that intense feeling of the desire to create with curiosity. And they said, what if instead of expelling that energy outward by making it a physical act in the world and using it for one moment of pleasure and release, what if we sent that energy in a different direction? In this case, what if we sent it up the spine, which in the tradition of yoga is the pathway of our spiritual energy, our consciousness energy. What if we sent it up the spine in order to create union with God rather than another person? And According to my teacher, that's where the idea of celibacy as a spiritual and yogic practice came from, that we want to, that, that energy is powerful. We acknowledge that and we try to send it in a different direction in order to create more connection to God, to the sacred. But I also feel aware that I think (laughs) that just because we choose to, I, I, what I'm, the what I'm trying to say is I think we can do both. I think there are moments where we can choose to send our energy up the spine. And in fact, that is what we call or what you'll hear referred to as kundalini, consciousness energy, shakti, spiritual power or spiritual energy. Those refer to the essence of creativity and transformation that fuels our spiritual life. And it comes from 
that place of like creation that sex also comes from. They come from the same place. And I think we can do both. I think we can sometimes choose to send that energy up the spine and say, I'm going to take this moment to connect with my source rather than connect with another person or choose physical release right now. But I also think it's possible to choose the, the, the sexual connection as a conscious choice too. And the reason, one of the reasons that there is some binary thinking, some either or, some black and white thinking in spiritual communities around sex or no sex is because one of the, the ideas behind taking your sexual energy up the spine rather than out and into the act of sex is that having an orgasm, sexual release, dissipates our consciousness energy, that kundalini, that shakti, it dissipates it and makes it less potent. I, however, would like to push back on that a little bit. And I'm going to use some of the other meanings of brahmacharya to go into that and to push back on that a little bit. So I talked a little bit earlier about how a brahmacharya, it's not just a word, it's also a, a person. It is a, it's a type of person. It's a phase of life in spiritual study. And there are different phases of life in spiritual study. There is the brahmacharya phase where we're practicing celibacy, spiritually studying. And then in traditional Indian and Hindu culture, there's a householder phase where someone has sex. They get married first usually and they have sex and they have children. So sex is a part of it, but there are these different phases of spiritual life. And First, one, to me, that indicates that there's a season for everything. There can be seasons to draw our sexual energy in and up rather than acting on it. And that can be really good for us. And there can be seasons when it's time to use it for connection and creation and pleasure, whatever we're, we're using it for. So I think, first of all, there's a season for everything. But I also feel very aware that Indian culture which has had a, it's, it's the birthplace of the yoga tradition, which is a, a point of deep gratitude for me. But at the same time, Indian culture is patriarchal and it is influenced by the caste system. And I first, before I go any further, I want to name that I am a white woman in the West talking about a culture that is not indigenous to me. And in a lot of ways, it is not my place to critique that culture. And I want to be clear, it's really not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do is explore and just name things as I understand them. And I am not the authority on this in any way. But my understanding is that India is a patriarchal culture and it's a culture influenced by the caste system. And the reason it's important to point out that India is a patriarchal culture is because you can't separate discussions around sexuality from patriarchy in our culture because sexuality has been used as a tool to perpetuate patriarchy, to oppress women and people who do not follow or, or fit the mold of heteronormative patriarchy. Our sexuality has been used to repress and oppress us. The, the power of sexuality has been deemed as shameful in order to enact control 
over people. And that is a tool and a, a, a hallmark of the patriarchy. And so I don't think you can separate the fact that the yogic tradition comes from a patriarchal culture and the fact that it includes morals and rules and dictates around sexuality. And I talked a little bit earlier about how a lot of new age spirituality as it exists right now on our wild internet, in our wild internet world, has often taken the, the principles and the, the dogma and the morals of our kind of American, I'm speaking from the perspective of someone in the States, our American repression and, you know, Christian values. And it has essentially repackaged those ideas in new age spiritual language. And so there's a lot of proselytizing around what the right and wrong way to live is as a spiritual person. And a lot of it is eerily similar to religious dogma, to religious restrictions, but just repackaged in spiritual language. And I think that it's understandable that that has happened because one of the great spiritual traditions, my chosen spiritual tradition of yoga, comes from a place where patriarchy is the dominant system, at least right now. I don't know that it's always been that way, but in modern times, patriarchy is the dominant system. And so I think we have to critically think a little bit about, you know, why would sexuality be included in this tradition? And is this a mechanism of control? And if we're thinking in terms of that phase of life when someone is a brahmacharya and they're choosing celibacy in order to dedicate more of their energy to the sacred, I think that makes sense. And I think that's valid. And I'm not trying to invalidate that at all. But I also think there's room to be curious around, is this also a mechanism of control? Because I feel aware that the folks who had access and have and, and perhaps historically had access to the path of spiritual study in India were men. It was not as available to women in my understanding. And so there, there's a conversation and there's curiosity to be had around how much of brahmacharya comes from a place of control and how much of it is about wise use of energy. Because that is real. But there's a part of me that rejects brahmacharya just based on the notion that there might be a little bit of, of control and patriarchy in there. And I can understand that that might not have been the intention at all whatsoever. And it's not up to me to say what the intention or the purpose is. I am not the authority on yoga or Indian culture at all. But I know myself as someone who has grown up in the United States in the Christian tradition, affected by patriarchy in my own life. And so whether it's there or not, I see it there. I see patriarchy in the idea of brahmacharya as strictly celibacy, strictly don't have sex. I feel control in that. And I think it's valid for me to feel that. And so that's why I have, I reject it somewhat. If you can't tell, I reject the idea that brahmacharya, that the yogic principles say we can't have sex to be spiritual. I think we can. Um, if we are conscious about how we're using our energy to honor sacred creativity. So that's, that's one thing that's, that's patriarchy, but also India and yoga by, by proxy are traditions and cultures influenced by the caste system. And the caste system 
is a system of cultural classification. It's a class system. It's a system of cultural stratification that was used in India to create class separation. And this was the dominant system in India for thousands of years up until the 1950s when India gained their independence from British colonial rule. So colonialism is in here too. And that's important to keep in mind that I'm not sitting here trying to bash India. The white supremacy, colonialism, capitalism, they all of these systems that create separation and oppression have a hand in the reason why this is a sticky subject. But um, when India gained their independence from British colonial rule in the 50s and established democratic republic as their system of governance, all discrimination based on caste or class was abolished. That doesn't mean it completely went away. We know very well here in the United States that abolishing something does not mean that the insidious kind of threads of that, that harm, that evil, go away. And that, that's, the true, that, that's true of the caste system. So the, the effects of that oppression are still felt and still being dealt with today. But the caste system is the system of stratification. And the highest caste, the highest class system were Brahmins. Brahmins. B-R-A-H-M-I-N-S. The Brahmins. These were said to be the purest class of people. And that's what this entire system was based on. That there are people who are impure and there are people who are pure. And the Brahmins were typically the priests, the people, the only people for whom it was acceptable to commune directly with God and to bring God to other people. And I don't find it coincidental that the word Brahmin has the same root word or prefix, if you will, as Brahma and Brahmacharya. Because there is this idea of purity as essential for a relationship with God tied in there. And to me, that mirrors a lot of the purity culture that is enacted in the United States, especially in Christian traditions, right? Where we're told we must stay sexually pure in order to continue to be in right relationship with God. That feels mirrored in this idea of brahmacharya if we look at it as parallel to the caste system parallel to the Brahmins as the purest ones and therefore the only ones worthy of a direct relationship with God. But I think because it's 2023, we can hopefully agree, at least those of you who are listening to this podcast, I hope you'll agree. I know that not everyone's going to feel this way, but I'm hoping in 2023, if we're looking at systems that were enacted 3,000 years ago, and more, I, don't, I got the word 3,000 because that was about how long the caste system was um, in place for. But even, even longer ago than that, if we're looking at these really old systems that say that only certain people get to have direct relationship with God and everybody else gets the translation, I think we can say that that's fucking outdated. <laughs> that's bullshit. And the idea that I'm working based off of now is that every single person 
gets to have a direct relationship with God. And I think that's becoming the prevailing sentiment in a lot of spiritual traditions as they are developing and evolving today is that there doesn't have to be hierarchy. There are people who are further along on the path because they've been doing it longer, but their job is to turn around and shine the light for others to walk the path as well. And that everyone can have direct relationship with God. And so I don't, I I think we can dispense with the notion if we're, if we're assuming, if we're working based on the principle that everyone deserves and is worthy of and gets to have direct relationship with the sacred, we can dispense with the notion that there are, you have to be a certain level of pure to have a relationship with the sacred. And to me, that then dissolves the idea that sexual purity, quote unquote, is necessary for a relationship with God. And it might even be that we've gotten this idea of purity all twisted around because I think the only purity we need, and this is the kind of purity that is taught by my teachers, Neem Karoli Baba, uh, an Indian saint who became the teacher of Ma Jaya, the very founder of my yoga lineage. The only purity that we need is purity of heart a heart that is open and willing to receive the divine. That's the only purity we need. And I think this kind of like sexual purity is bullshit. (laughs) And I think that if we look at it that way, if we understand that this idea of Brahma, of the sacred, as tied up in the caste system, and this idea that there are certain people that are pure or impure, I think it's easy to see that Brahmacharya as a strict doctrine of celibacy and sexual purity is really outdated and we can start to embrace these different ways of understanding brahmacharya and still embrace the path of classical yoga and still be on the spiritual path and as i have alluded to several times my choice as a practitioner is to embrace brahmacharya as consciously and wisely using my spiritual energy to honor sacred creativity, whether that means sitting in silence, making art, or making love. And that's not for everybody, right? Like I said, my spiritual teacher is a celibate monk, and that's a choice that she made. And that's something that she emphasizes all the time, and that she said her teacher, Majaya, the founder of my lineage, would also say, it's gotta be a choice and a a rightness that comes internally, not a dictation, not an order or uh, an expectation that's external. And for me, at least in this phase of my life, and I'm totally open to evolution and change, I receive the idea that we have to be celibate to be spiritual as as a dictation, as an external expectation. Internally, that's not who I am. The path that I choose, at least right now, is embodiment, full embodiment, being in the body, which includes my whole self-experience of feeling turned on, of liking sex a lot, enjoying sex, because yes, I enjoy sex. And right now, I am lucky enough to be in a wonderful partnership, and I enjoy having sex with my partner, and it feels like a conscious act of connection. It feels like it can enhance my capacity to love and understand and connect with this person, and so it feels like brahmacharya, like wise use of my creative energy. And I'm reading this book right now that was gifted to me by one of my dear teachers. Um, It's called 
Why no Wild Mercy Wild Mercy by Mirabai Star. And in it, she talks about embodiment, being in the body, taking form, taking shape as a quality of the sacred feminine. And like I touched on earlier, whenever I talk about sacred masculine, sacred feminine, I'm referring to the archetype, the energies associated with those concepts, which we can all embody, which we all contain, whether we are a man, a woman, a non-binary person, whatever, agender, Anyone can embody these qualities, and we can name them however we want, but she names it as a sacred feminine quality when we are embodied, when we take form, when we find sacred in the cellular reality of exactly what's in front of us. And that sacred feminine embodiment is 1000% my path. I was named for one of the sacred feminine forms, Tara, the goddess of compassion and spaciousness, And so I practice self-compassion and spaciousness by allowing my embodiment, by knowing that that is who I am and that's how I connect with the sacred, by being fully in my body, by being fully immersed and enamored by and in love with exactly what's in front of me, which sometimes includes sexual connection. And so there we go (laughs) for episode 69, a pretty in-depth discussion and reflection on sex on the spiritual path. And like I alluded to earlier, this is a conversation and I hope it inspires you to reflect. I hope that you might reach out to me if you have questions, thoughts, if you want to push back on me, if you want to give me feedback, reach out, right? I'm on Instagram at Lara two underscores Tara. I would love to get a DM from you if you want to discuss this more. But now to honor that principle of embodiment, not escaping the body, not bypassing the body because we think we're impure, but being fully in the body as an act of sacred creation. Let's fucking practice. (laughs) So here we are in this moment of the Awareness Offerings podcast where we go into embodied practice. We shift from discussion into meditation. So if you're not in a position where you can safely or you have the the means to sit for a little bit of quiet contemplation right now, this is a great time to pause and come back when you're ready. If you are ready now, I'll invite you to find a comfortable seated position. Any seat at all, find your embodiment because I think that's the point of my reflections and discussions is that we each get to find our individual embodiment of these ancient and sacred spiritual principles. So find your embodiment by finding any seat at all that allows you to have a long spine, that spinal column as the pathway through which our sacred energy moves, sometimes up, sometimes out into the world. So you find space in your spine, positioning your arms and legs however you need to, sitting on or against whatever surface and whatever support that you need to, and then perhaps you settle into this seat of meditation by closing your eyes. Maybe you don't. Maybe instead you choose a soft gaze, looking down the tip of your nose or toward the floor. It's up to you. You just want to choose the eye posture that allows you to feel like you have more of that sacred energy to turn toward yourself rather than needing to give it out into the external world right now. 
And so you turn toward yourself and that is the dance of brahmacharya, of knowing when it's wise to put your energy out into the world and when it's wise to draw it inward. And right now we draw it inward. And you might be sending some awareness toward your breath, following the arc of your inhale and exhale, maybe in and out through your nose if that's available to you. You don't have to notice your breath and you certainly don't have to change your breath. But that arc of the breath is something that is happening right now. So you might be using it, following it into the present moment. Just practicing landing, arriving as you turn your energy and your awareness toward yourself. giving yourself space to maybe physically feel like your essence, your unis is dropping into the space of your physical body as it is in the present moment. Embodiment. There's no separation between turning inward and embodiment. They are one practice and the same. So as you notice your physical and present moment and maybe even energetic reality, you might also be noticing that your mind is still there with you. That is natural. Our human minds are a part of our embodiment. So we don't have to shame ourselves for having thoughts, just like we don't have to shame ourselves for liking sex. Instead, we can acknowledge them just like we acknowledge the breath. Knowing that we don't have to have no thoughts to meditate, we're just trying to go somewhere else for right now so that we can be a little more centered. The mind tends to be kind of spirally and loud and fast, but embodiment can be a little more centered and steady. So we can let the mind be as it is, but we can redirect the, inten- the attention back toward center, toward our embodiment, and we can use and follow the arc of the breath to do that. So maybe just returning to your breath, returning to your center as often as you need to. Doesn't matter how often you need to. And the more you direct your attention back to your breath, the more you teach yourself how to meditate. Now, with a little more of a relationship to our breath and our energy here, we're going to start to direct the breath and the energy in a specific way. You can choose to do this or not. You can just stay with the arc of your breath or imagine sending your breath. The breath still moves through the lungs, but you send the the essence of the breath in the direction of your low belly. You send your awareness there. The space right between your hip points. You might imagine breathing in and out at that space. You might imagine a light or a color directing your attention there. You might feel physical sensation there. 
just creating some embodiment at the lowest belly. This is one of our seven major energy centers, points in the energy body, also known as chakras, like file folders of different kinds of information and energy stored in different places in the body. Here, this second chakra, this low belly, typically stores our energy associated with creativity, with sexuality. It is the physical home of the sexual organs. And beyond just sexual creation, it also houses our capacity for all types of creation and creativity. And so you begin to embody some awareness there, to listen in there. To start to honor that space. As whatever it is for you. Maybe it is a hub of creation. Maybe there's healing to be done there. Maybe there are traces of trauma and shame. It's a place where we can release shame. Though we don't have to do it all at once. Maybe it's a place of sexual expression. Sensuality for you. Maybe it's a place where you know that you want to direct that creative energy up instead of out, at least for now. But whatever this place, this center point of creation, sensuality, sexuality means for you, you see it and acknowledge it and start to honor it for what it is with your breath, your embodied awareness. And this could even be a moment to listen in and get curious. Maybe you're not quite sure what this space means for you. What your relationship to sexual energy and wise use of your own creative energy is. That's okay. This could be a moment to start to tune in to what is available there for you. What do you want and need there? What knowing and intuition do you have there? Just honoring and listening in here for a few breaths. giving yourself some time and space to be with this part of you, this one part of the whole. take a moment to just say thank you. Thank you to and for whatever has arisen here, whatever you have honored as the reality of this space for you, whatever you've learned about your relationship to this space. Maybe you just say thank you. Thank you for the information. Thank you for the teachings. Thank you.
And having offered gratitude and awareness and acknowledgement, you might slowly begin to blink your eyes open. You don't have to jump out. You get to take what you learned and received with you into the embodiment of the rest of your day. And as you come back to the space around you, you might start to move your body. (sighs) And now we've practiced. And we've talked about sex. (laughs) and spirituality. It's a really nuanced, really layered, complex conversation as evidenced by the fact that this might be one of my longest podcast episodes ever. But I think it's important to allow our wholeness, which includes, you know, our sexual energy, connecting with others, loving others through physical intimacy sometimes. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts. I'm interested to hear any reflections you might have, but overall, I just offer you and and kind of offer hope and love for this space of reflection that might be inspired by this episode. So thanks for being here and uh, talking about sex on episode 69. Thank you for listening to this awareness offering. The awareness offerings podcast is created, edited, and produced by me, Lara Tara Davy Joplin. My music is by my brother, Oxella, O-X-E-L-A, who can be found on Instagram, Spotify, iTunes, and beyond. You can keep up with me on Instagram at Lara two underscores Tara. Talk to you next time.